Salvagene SARS-CoV-2 Task Force. Biotech SMEs win hands down against Big Pharma in the race to develop vaccines. A word of caution to our premium clients. Anyone in recovery from COVID or suffering from long COVID needs to take precautions against aspergillus spores. With CureVac having submitted its first license application in Switzerland last week, a third mRNA-based vaccine is now market-ready. CureVac opted for Switzerland as the country where it would start the approval procedure. We consider SwissMedic, the Swiss Agency for Therapeutic Products, to be the strictest regulatory authority in the world. CureVac has decided to take the plunge here, having chosen to go down a much harder route in Phase three clinical trials, selecting populations where the most mutations are prevalent. We confidently expect CureVac to receive approval. This will certainly be followed by successful applications to the EMA and FDA because SwissMedic sets the benchmark in this field. Soon, we can expect to see no fewer than three mRNA vaccines on the market, all of which were developed by SME biotech companies. We consider these three vaccines to be the most effective and also the most technologically advanced while producing the fewest side effects. The developers have thus left the big pharma producers trailing in their wake. All of the global players in this sector have embarked on their own programs of vaccine development against the novel coronavirus. Many of them, including Merck, Novartis, GlaxoSmithKline, Jalita, Sanofi and Roche, discontinued their projects either at a relatively early stage or only more recently. Eli Lilly quickly abandoned its quest to develop a vaccine and switched to the field of medication for the treatment of COVID-19 patients. Of the pharma giants, only AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson remain in the field, having had their vaccines approved some time ago. The Novavax protein-based vaccine project also continues, though this too has an efficacy deficit compared with the mRNA-based alternatives. However, the side effects here are significantly lower. We have written at length about the shortcomings of the non-mRNA vaccines, which makes the success of these three relatively small-scale innovators, Moderna, 800 employees, CureVac, around 600, and BioNTech, 1,300, all the more impressive. The companies are all based in regions that are not normally considered to be pharmaceutical hubs. For example, Moderna started up in a suburb of Boston, while BioNTech and CureVac are based in Mainz and Tübingen, respectively. All three companies have followed different paths to success. What is especially remarkable about Moderna is that they have retained control of their product rollout throughout. Meanwhile, BioNTech has become the global market leader through having developed the best vaccine to date and having struck a mutually beneficial deal with distribution and production partner Pfizer. It is important to note that this vaccine was first to be approved in the Western world. At the same time, there has been no discernible first-to-market disadvantage for this product to date. There is an ongoing discussion in Israel about heart muscle inflammation as a possible side effect of the BioNTech vaccine. However, this applies to more or less all vaccines as a matter of course. We will report on this in more detail in the coming days. CureVac is likely to follow a similar trajectory. Assuming that approval is granted, we expect this vaccine to become the gold standard for the foreseeable future. It will go to market with a similar concept to that of BioNTech, in this case with Bayer as a manufacturing partner. So in this context, at least, small is beautiful. As predicted, a completely different kind of evolutionary battle is developing between the SARS-CoV-2 mutations, whereby only the fittest mutation survives. It seems that the South African variant has been unable to muscle in on territory currently dominated by the B.1.1.7 variant. 
It will be interesting to see how well B.1.1.7 fares in competition with the P1 Plus variant, which has been ravaging the whole of the South American continent for the past few months. And as reported in our previous keynote, we are watching with concern the development of the double mutation at the spike protein in the Indian variant. We consider this to be significantly more infectious and at the same time capable of significantly reducing vaccine efficacy. We note that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, and subsidiary authorities also classify this variant as dangerous. In the past couple of weeks, several countries have imposed entry bans on travelers from India. All of these occurrences have a decisive influence on the entire mutation process, on the further course of the pandemic, and on what happens next with vaccine development. Mixed messaging is emerging on the vector-based vaccine front. Recently, a number of countries have reaffirmed approval for use with specific age gender groups, or indeed for the population in general. At the same time, investigations into potentially fatal side effects continue. For example, the CDC is currently looking into deaths that occurred immediately after individuals were injected with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. A report on recent cases in Oregon and Texas is due to be published soon. In the UK, not a single case of blood clotting was recorded until a couple of months ago, but now just under 200 have been reported in connection with the AstraZeneca vaccine, 32 of which proved fatal. We suspected that the figures might be in this order, but we were quite shocked by the steep increase. As regards antibody medications, there are now several on the market. The problem they exhibit in terms of effectiveness is similar to that of vaccines. The only difference is that these drugs have the much greater and more serious disadvantage that their genetically engineered antibodies are selected for maximum effectiveness. And of course, with the different gene variants in circulation, these antibody drugs lose their effectiveness more quickly than the mRNA-triggered antibodies that are produced across the full spectrum we conclude that there will be no significant breakthrough in the field of antibody medications as long as the pace of mutation remains at the current level. We are likewise unconvinced about the use of asthma sprays in response to a SARS-type disease. At best, they can be used as an additional aid. The budesonide inhalers available on the market contain a cortisone preparation which acts in a similar way to dexamethasone, which is currently the only effective medication for treating a severe case of the disease. Theoretically, the spray has the advantage that it works at the precise location where the virus does the most damage, namely on the walls of the airways. We think that localized inhibition of inflammation with which the body reacts to the pathogen may not be the only positive effect, because cortisone preparations can also inhibit the multiplication of SARS-CoV-2 viruses. And in cell cultures, they simultaneously reduce the number of ACE2 receptors by means of which the pathogen enters the cells. According to a recent study in the Lancet Respiratory Medicine Journal, the chances of success are quite high, and so we include that in the C19 immunization program as a potential solution in the case, and at least have it down as an option. It makes sense to have an inhaler on hand. However, there is a limitation on this very solution in our next recommendation for premium clients who may be in recovery from COVID or suffering from long COVID. Precautions must be taken against inhaling aspergillus spores because they pose a potentially fatal risk, especially in patients who are hospitalized with severe symptoms of the disease. This is because the fungus is widespread in intensive care units. In such circumstances, use of cortisone spray would then be highly counterproductive. Depending on which study you look at, the lungs of up to one-third of COVID-19 patients contain traces of aspergillus. In one study of approximately 180 COVID-19 patients, around half had clearly died from complications caused by the fungus. Aspergillus is so dangerous because it eats through the lungs and damages the tissue so severely that air exchange becomes difficult to impossible. 
It can also damage the blood vessels in the lungs, causing victims to suffocate in their own blood. Moreover, it turns out that fungal diseases, as a secondary complication of COVID-19, are by no means the exception. At first, it seems paradoxical that the Aspergillus fungus might pose a danger to a COVID-19 patient, because here it is precisely a hyperactive immune system that is a feature of the disease. So why should a fungi be able to spread well in an environment teeming with antibodies? Unfortunately, the immune system is so busy fighting SARS-CoV-2 that weak points are created in other areas of the body's defenses. The issue is that, in the event of a SARS-CoV-2 infection, there is pinpoint response, and this creates weak spots in the overall defense. For example, the number of lymphocytes, which are particularly important for defense against fungi, drops to very low levels as the disease progresses. In some cases, exhaustion syndrome sets in because, at some point, the immune system is overloaded by the battle against the coronavirus. And this is true even for young patients who are otherwise in good health. Under normal circumstances, the human body does not have a major problem with aspergillus because the immune system has learned to fight this particular fungus. However, if the immune system is severely debilitated, as in the case of a SARS-CoV-2 infection, the pathogens can gain the upper hand. It is not only COVID-19 patients, but also HIV sufferers, cancer patients, and transplant recipients who are vulnerable to this type of pathogen. In such cases, treatment is very much undermined. We recommend that precautions taken in the intensive care unit should take the aspergillus fungus into account. There is much to suggest that cortisone, the most successful drug available to physicians in the intensive care unit, sometimes itself contributes to the development of aspergillus infections. It works by slowing down the immune system. This can increase the risk of fungal infection. For this reason, we advocate systematically checking every COVID-19 patient in the intensive care unit for fungi, or better still, administering antifungal agents to all patients as a preventative measure. Against this background, our COVID-19 immunization program also specifically checks for aspergillus infections.